the way I want to start off episode one is by asking you guys a question. So, remember when you were at school, sitting cross-legged on the floor, craning your neck and slouching for so long that the comfort of a chair was considered a luxury, listening to the teacher like they were the vessels of all knowledge and wisdom, they would read from a child-friendly book about Henry VIII's six wives, which meant less gore while your eyes glazed over from the intense boredom setting in, your legs screaming to run outside while every word now coming out of the teacher's mouth is moving one ear and out the other. Now I can't guarantee that I'm the vessel of all knowledge and wisdom, as achingly obvious as that is, but I can guarantee that you are definitely going to enjoy this episode, because I definitely enjoyed recording it. So we're starting strong with our first episode, we're dipping right into the heart and golden fields of 19th century Punjab, so sharpen your swords, wax your moustaches, this is the power of Pesa. So joining me today is Dr. Priya Atwal, and I just want to say uh, thanks for doing this. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Um, no, thank you for having me, Serena, and um, that was that was so much fun. I really enjoyed listening to that. <laughs> as long as you enjoyed it, that's the main thing. Um, so I'm sure you know that this is a pretty important project for me, um, being a first-generation Indian. So both my parents were born in Punjab, and then they came to India. They came to England, sorry. Right. Um your parents were from Punjab as well, no? Yes, my parents, the, yeah, my family is Sikh. They came from uh, sort of eastern Punjab around um, Jalandhar and Amritsar. Nice. Well, my parents were born in Jalandhar as well, so we already have a connection. So we've got two sets of Punjabi parents, but at least we know that anybody of Punjabi heritage listening to the episode is yelling, Chuck the Farte! Of course, what else would you yell? <laughs> All we need are a couple of doll players and then we're, we're pretty much done. I hope you add that as a part of the soundtrack for this. Yeah, definitely, I will, I will. Right, on with the show, otherwise I'm going to start dancing soon. So, uh, Bria, you chose two figures and I decided to let you because I'm slightly psycho. No, <laughs> it's just because I was interested in mainly your second choice because the first choice I hadn't really... I don't really know anything about, but your second choice intrigued me a lot. So uh, let's start off with your first choice, and her name is Bibi Moran. She was the first Muslim wife of the Emperor Ranjit Singh, uh, the Maharaja of the Sikh Empire. Yes, and the Sikh Empire was a kingdom that was established uh, by the what was known as the Sukhachakya Missal, which was a particular warrior band. A Sikh-led uh, warrior band, um, and it was sort of developed from the late seventeen eighties, really, until and it was it became an empire, um, running most of Punjab and even reaching into sort of bits of Afghanistan and Tibet, up until eighteen forty nine, when it's taken over by the British. Um, so Bibi Moran was a queen of that empire, so one of Ranjit Singh's many wives, and um, she was actually. A dancing girl, a courtesan, or the wife, um, which is the more accurate term, uh, in Amritsar before she met Ranjit Singh. Well, when she met Ranjit Singh. And supposedly, as the story goes, he was so captivated by her dancing, by her beauty, but her, also her intellect, since the wives were actually highly educated women, uh, that he just fell over, head over heels for her. And he was desperate to marry her. 
And so he marries her within about five years or so of his actually becoming Maharaja. He already had two Sikh wives by this point. See, now, not to give him a bad name or anything, but I just think it's completely fascinating. Um, I read somewhere that he had a harem of 46 women altogether and that they were split into four categories. So the first group being um, his wives who were married through uh, Sikh orthodoxy. The second group were widows who he labelled as his wives. The third group were courtesans and the final group were the concubines. So I just assumed that they were the pleasure group. So... I need to check that number for you. Sorry, I always it's in my book, but I keep forgetting the number. It's really bad, and it's actually a key point that I should make. Um, you know what? Because I had to change the number so many times, the final number hasn't stuck in my head because I'd find new bits of information, and I, I just I need to remember it. Really bad. Um, so he had a harem of lots of women. He had lots of women in his in his life. Yes, uh, <laughs> but um, essentially, um, he goes on to have at least thirty odd wives. In the end, and it's part of his sort of empire building project, essentially, as my own research shows, um, that he marries women from all different backgrounds and levels of society within the Punjab in order to build his empire and basically have inroads into all these different communities. Mm. But Bibi Mora is known to have been a love marriage, as, as you'd say in kind of Bollywood terms, right? It's that he <laughs> falls for her and he just has to marry her. And so there's a rumour that he... Um, that he actually had a coin struck in her name. Now, oh. ironically, we've sadly as well, we haven't ever found evidence of this uh-huh. coin f- officially, right? That we don't know because many coins from Ranjit Singh's era, and I mean from throughout decades and centuries of Indian history, do still exist in museums. We've never quite found one that we can definitively say was what was known as the Mora Shahi Sikha. Right, so the the kind of royal coin of Bibi Mora, Queen Mora. Mm. Um, so it's unfortunate that we haven't got the real historical evidence, but the the rumor, historical rumor, is tantalizing. So and and the story being that he's you know he struck it to to honor his new queen, but out of as a marker of his love for her. I think one of the other things that was unique about Bibi Mora was that she wasn't afraid to tell Ranjit Singh what's what. So there's a couple of interesting stories um, about their relationship um, in which it didn't go swimmingly, but I don't know. Um, so there was one, there's a famous exchange between um, Modern and Rajit Singh in which she asked, uh, where were you when the when the Lord was distributing good looks? And basically calling him ugly. And Ranjit Singh replied, I was busy getting his angels to lead me to a kingdom to be conquered, i.e., to expand the Sikh empire even more. So they had a good relationship from the sounds of it. And he took every opportunity to celebrate her as his wife. And I read that the wedding procession was massive and that it stretched from Lahore Fort to uh, Shalamar Garden. And just to give you guys an idea, the, the distance between the two on foot is an hour and a half. You can imagine how exhausted those palanquin drivers were. And to me, it just it just makes me think how much it puts the procession in Aladdin to shame. <laughs> well, this is it. It's in- this is it's just incredible. The weddings that were celebrated in the Punjab under Ranjit Singh's dynasty. I mean, Ranjit Singh didn't need a genie to do all that. Yeah, you know, and this is where the the ultimate Punjabi craziness over weddings comes from. I think like Ranjit Singh takes it to another level. 
So yeah, it's just, it's phenomenal what happens. Um, but I think, to be honest, bringing it back to the discussion about Bibi Mora, you know, she's fascinating, but all of the wives are fascinating and we don't we don't explore them enough. And that's what I've tried to bring to light with my recent book is that yeah. these women had a lot of agency, actually. And I think it, by the sounds of it, Ranjit Singh was happy for that to happen to a degree, as long as it didn't interfere with his own plans. But Bibi Mura in particular is, you know, not only is she, you know, the, the beautiful wife that he loves, but like we said, she's educated, she challenges him, he allows that to happen, he doesn't fold in front of it um, or get angry. Um, she has her own property. So this idea about the Lahore Haram, it's nonsense. They, they have their own property. They move the women, the wives move around whenever they sort of feel like it by the sounds of it, What from what I've been able to find. Um, she sets up educational establishments uh, for traveling Islamic scholars, you know, in the route between Hindustan and Iran, basically. Because obviously, if you think about it, the Punjab and Lahore is in the middle of the land route, right? Um, and so she, she entertains all these very educated people and she builds mosques and that kind of stuff as well. So Bibi Morden was actually a good choice uh, for a wife. So for a Sikh king who was actually ruling over a majority Muslim population, majority Hindu and Muslim, um, with Sikhs very much in the minority, even though they're a very powerful minority. And, and in, in Lahore in particular, it was majority Muslim. Um, it's really important to have a wife like that. It's really helpful if you think about it, right? Yeah. But it is fascinating that maybe he was a naughty boy or a cheeky boy at one stage and issued a coin in the name of his new wife. Sorry, just to add to that as well, but they didn't have such a warm reception to their marriage, did they? Yeah, we do know for sure that he did get into a bit of trouble after he married Mora, um, yeah. mainly because supposedly, as the story goes, when they were kind of in their honeymoon phase, he was taking her about on one of his elephants and having a few drinks and celebrating and that kind of stuff in the streets publicly. And the the, the Sikh religious sort of authorities in the Agaldakht in Amritsar were not happy about this. They were not happy to hear this. Yeah, I think I know this story. And they called him to the Agaldakht and sort of reminded him that this is not the way for you to behave. Yeah, yeah. And the, the Jatidar or the uh, high priest of the Akalitakht told him that he needed to be whipped as punishment or to pay a heavy fine and we don't know for sure if he did have those lashes on his back apparently there's a, the story goes that he may have had at least one symbolically but he paid a very hefty fine apologized humbled himself and then you know went away and um was a bit more discreet about things so really despite the concern of others of outsiders to the marriage of Ranjit Singh and Bibi Moran, she was actually seen as quite a positive influence and a good queen. Yeah, sorry, I just wanted to ask, and I know this is going to seem slightly off topic to you guys, but this is, this. trust me, this this links all together with, um, with your second figure, Priya. So what was Ranjit Singh's, because we know he, he was, um, he strictly adhered to Sikhism, so how did this affect his reign? What did this mean? The coin aspect is interesting with him because the the funny thing about Ranjit Singh, well, the most interesting thing about Ranjit Singh is how he operates as a king, as a Sikh and as a king. Um, mainly because there's a lot of uh, kind of, how do I say it? 
there's a lot of in in modern historiography on Ranjit Singh. There's a lot of discomfort about the idea that a Sikh was a Maharaja, yeah. because it goes against this modern understanding that Sikhs are inherently republican in their politics, in that they want you know to abjure monarchy, they want to abjure dynastic rule, um, but also that they're fundamentally humble. Okay. Yeah. But actually, this goes against the logic of much of the political philosophy that existed not only in Ranjit Singh's time, but earlier, and also actually the activity of the Sikh gurus themselves, who were very much around in the time that monarchies like the Mughals were in play. And they, they, they used that as a trope, but they used it subversively. They didn't reject it entirely. They didn't ab, ab, you know, advocate ideas of republicanism, actually, as far as we understand. But they, they adopted a kind of a courtly modus operandi, and they made it something else. But they said that ultimately sovereignty is not something that you get, you know, as an egoistic person. It's something that you derive from God. Okay. And that ultimately the true emperor is God, right? Not any human king. Any human king can be toppled whenever, right? If they don't remember to be a humble person. So Ranjit Singh, technically, it's okay for him to be a king as long as he remembers to behave himself, right? And so interestingly, the vast majority of coins that he issues, or all of the coins, sorry, that he issues during the course of his reign, apart from the rumoured Mora Shahi Sikha, have Guru Nanak or Guru Gobind Singh mm. on the coin. Rather, they never have his own face. And if you think about most currencies in countries that have monarchies, they normally have the face of the ruler, don't they? Right? <laughs> Be it a Roman emperor, be it a Mughal, or be it Queen Elizabeth in this country, okay, in the UK. Ranjit Singh doesn't have his face put on when he becomes Maharaja. He has Guru Nanak or Guru Gobind Singh, and then some sort of um, inscribed text, basically. So, And that's a reminder that he is enshrining um, and and respecting the sovereignty of the Gurus as the embodiments of, of God, essentially. And so that's why I chose Guru Nanak as my other person and my other figure to put on the coin because it's harking back to this idea that you know our sovereignty comes from something above us right essentially or or beyond us right that it's a, a reminder to be to be humble and to not use that coin as a sign of arrogance basically and and power um inequalities and that sort of stuff so in that sense is the king showing his power but also giving seemingly giving away the power right yeah, so I can kind of see the appeal when we're talking about a figure like Guru Nanak. But the problem was that when I asked my family, they yeah. gave me reasons as to why he shouldn't be on the note. So they were the main argument was that he wasn't representative of India and that he'd only represent the Sikh community. Plus, there was an, another issue that I had with this. It's just that, you know, when people say, oh, the Guru only represents the Sikh community, but the issue is that, when he describes the word Sikh, it's not in... I, I suppose it doesn't come across as a religious thing. He says it more as... It me, it means a student, someone who's learning from the Guru, someone who's listening to the word of God from someone else. And the Guru doesn't have any illusions. He says that he's not a figure of God, so don't, you know, don't look at him in that sort of way. He merely He's merely helping others... Um, get closer to God and he also talks about the practice of I guess if you want to say Sikhism which isn't you know you know the the turban and and things like that it's it's more a case of improving oneself so um 
he talks about seva, which is like charity work, um, being kind to others. Um, don't live your life around worldly pleasures because they're only a temporary thing and we're only here temporarily. Um, you know, looking at others without caste or creed or a different religion, that we should be treating each other in a kind and equal manner. I suppose the way I would describe a Sikh is it's about how to be a good human. So what you're arguing is that if we were to mint or print Guru Nanak on the rupee, if we're looking at the argument about representation, it's it's a case of, well, he's actually representing every being because he's not discriminating against one. But again, it doesn't, it's only later come to assume a more kind of concrete identity as someone from a particular type of organised religion, right? And so that's where we fall into this, again, this more modern logic or this logic that eventually emerges over time, right? Not something that's I guess the way more fluid idea that, that the gurus were trying to get to, to grips with. Um, so yeah, it, we just lapse into this, that person's a Sikh, that person's a Muslim, that person's a Hindu, you know, that person's a Dalit or, or whatever, right? A Brahmin. So yeah. it's, it's way more fluid than that, way more all-encompassing than that. Um, but I think if we think about that broader history, it's... It's really important to see, well, where have we come, you know, in all of this time? What's happened to all of our politics and our community relations since then? And, and actually, if you think about it, it's not that long ago. And I can understand that a coin of that nature, if it was to be minted today, would mean something very different to what it was then, basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? So that's something I wanted to share with you, basically. And, you know, even with Bibi Morin, even though she was a Muslim, her role as queen of the court and what she did was accepted. We shouldn't be thinking of how politics works now, like the kind of, you know, Indo-Pak relations, I guess, but we should be thinking about how fluid and and connected we were in the past if we were to have Bibi Moran on, on the rupee. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is the thing. We And the other thing to bear in mind is that, of course, post-partition or leading up to partition these these religious boundaries became much more arbitrarily and and painfully divisive and and strictly defined than they really were in the Punjab much earlier and across South Asia Um, so there was definitely fluidity in religious practices Mm -hmm. but also there was a lot more cultural intermingling than we and especially in a period like early 19th century Punjab so yeah, there's there's a lot. I think this is the thing. I think the idea of the coin, the Morashai Sikha, and also just the marriage, and the way that that relationship operated, not just between the two of them, but for the kingdom as a whole, it's an interesting one, and it's it gives us a whole different picture to the communal politics that we associate with 1947 partition yeah. and the creation of India and Pakistan as independent nations. So, in your opinion, do you think Bibi Morden would be accepted as a figure on the rupee note? I think in today's BJP-led India, I think they would have a massive problem with, with, with their yeah, Muslim on the note. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just I couldn't just think- see it happening, to be honest with you. Yeah. I suppose it's quite interesting because, you know, India claims to be a secular nation, but we've seen evidence to the contrary. So um, there's a very right-wing 
Hindu nationalist movement happening. And we've seen it, I think, in more prominently in the past couple of years, especially, you know, what's been happening uh, in the Easter break. And I guess that, you know, I guess that my question is, you know, is have our opinion, have opinions about or thinking about uh, Muslims shifted or distorted in some way since partition happened um because obviously that's when the conception of the rupee and you know gandhi was put on the note and also the history of it of muslim hindu relations has i don't want to say deteriorated but it's definitely changed so you know the obvious violence in the in the 30s and the 40s and then i suppose in the post-partition 50s and 60s you see a lot of media portrayals vilifying Muslims. So, and of course, then by the 60s, 70s, you see Muslim grievances themselves turning more political. But there was always this this trend or, or strand, I suppose, of Hindu right wing, Hindutva style politics that didn't see Muslims as part of the nation at all. And of course, wanted to subsume other minorities like Sikhs and Jains and, and whatever, right? So it's always been there. But I think the ability or the interest to contain it has definitely evaporated by by the time that we've reached today um and i mean there's the, the the question of whether india is truly willing or able to be a secular nation is is deeply contested right but i think it's it it definitely has the potential and it has always been there and i think there is a lot of will on the part of a lot of people and you saw that with the nationalist movement, but it's it is a massive country that's incredibly diverse, and I think the the sadness of it is I don't think you can I don't think we can afford to let go of that dream. I mean, you can call it a dream rather than a reality, perhaps, but I don't think you can afford to. I mean, uh, it would be a huge, a huge injustice to the Muslims of of India, which are by no means a small population either. They're into the multiple millions, right? So to to leave them out of the making of that country and that nation is just a fundamental error, you know? I mean, I kind of brushed over this issue when we were talking about um, having a Sikh representative on, on the rupee. But do you think Gandhi is actually representative or is he representative to the majority uh, in India, as opposed to having, say, Bibi Moran or, or Guru Nanak, who are minorities or of or part of the minority um, in India, especially for its time, but also today in the present. Well, this is this is the whole thing, right? I mean, this the ultimately today and and since the, really the twentieth century in particular, or the late nineteenth century at least, we operate with the logic of segments of population don't we? We operate with this idea of minority majority um, or my multiple minorities and how do you represent those categories under the umbrella of the nation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that we need certain figures to do that job. But that to me then begs the question as to whether Gandhi is representative of all the communities in India. So, you know, I just think that when we when we question one historical figure as to why he or she shouldn't be on the note because they're not representative. Well, can we not ask the same question about Gandhi as well? Especially because the note hasn't actually changed since since Gandhi's face was put on the note. So 
this implies that he has this ubiquity, not just in the physical form of the note, but his uh, his philosophy and his ideals are are the same and rooted in everybody, and it it's never changing. I mean, I suggested Guru Nanak because, um, according to the logic of the time in which he was on coins. It's an entirely different logic to what we have today, okay? Yeah. And, and I mean, it, you know, to be fair, the logic of that time perhaps was less democratic than what we have today because, of course, it was a king who was minting a coin and in order to show himself as humble, he put the guru on there, right? And, of course, he's, you, one could say he's imposing his religion on the people, right? On, on the and then they were Muslim, they were whatever, right? However, he was still seen, as far as we understand it, as somebody who could be uh, revered across all communities, right? Yeah. And we know that you know at that. Time, I mean, I'm not to say that this is this is he should also be made as a catch-all figure, Guru Nanak, but we do know that across Punjab, Hindu Sikhs and Muslims did look up to the Guru as a leader, and he was accepted as a symbol of um, inclusion, really, one could say, right? Now, that logic is not the same logic that we operate in technically today, right, with this minority-majority representation issue. And it's interesting that Gandhi has been put in that place, that he is now today the catch-all figure of the nation, Mm. and supposed to embody the democratic struggle that the Indians went through in order to achieve independence, right? Mm. So he's he's in a way the, the kind of the catch-all as Guru Nanak was perhaps then. Yeah. But we entirely, you know, this whole idea of having multiple figures on the coin, it's, you know, or multiple coins with different figures, is something fundamentally different to what we have, we've had in the past. And I, so I think what coins mean (laughs) and then what the figure of the coin means is something that has massively changed over time okay is what i'm is what i guess i'm trying to say here and therefore guru nanak from what he used to represent on a coin will mean something entirely different today because Mm. what you're saying to me and what i i guess would be assumed is that he's there just to represent sikhs yeah yeah he's the sikh figurehead yeah. And that was never what he was on the coin for before. Well, clearly, minting or printing money in the past was had very different intentions and meanings as to as to its conception. Well, this has been a fantastic interview, Priya, um, and I'm really glad you chose to do this. Brilliant. I was wondering if you had any final comments that you'd like to add before we uh, finish up. I think I think this is the thing. It's so funny how we how we have this obsession today over things like coins and statues and 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 movies I suppose as well things like that because we those are made to be you know they're almost fetishized as representations of our history, right? And of course they're important. They're really powerful as symbols. But it's almost like history stops with the coin or history stops with the statue. There's no public debate or wider discourse or educational impetus to not not enough, I suppose, anyway, as an academic. Maybe I'm being a bit over the top here, but I think I think it's a genuine thing to encourage people to to delve more deeply into the history of what the coin means, 
or what the person on the coin means, you know, yeah. and to have that debate. So it's like there can only be one right answer for what goes on the coin. But actually, it's about so much more than that, right? It's about so much more. And, and we have to think about well, what does the coin mean to us? How has that changed over time in and of itself, let alone who you put on that coin? That's another debate. <laughs> well, I hope you guys enjoyed episode one, The Dancing Peacock and Sri Nimmer Nanak, The Humble Guru. At least I hope I've given you something to think about in this first episode. Look forward to episode two coming very soon. I'll be talking about a famous-ish scientist with Benita Damodaran. Asian Crew signing out.